to get it. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we pray that you would show us yourself within your word, that you would show us ourselves and that you would show us our Savior. We pray for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Well, friends, I think it's fair to say that even in the church, we struggle sometimes to understand grace and mercy. You would think that in the church that we would have a good grasp, a good hold on grace and what it is and what it isn't, and on mercy and what it is and what it isn't. But because of the fact that we're fallen, because of the way that we are wired being children of Adam, it is hard for us sometimes to understand grace and mercy in the ways that we should. We are so prone to think in terms of merit. We think in terms of what we deserve and what others deserve or what others do not deserve from our perspective. We often trade with the intellectual capital of fairness. It's something that we think about regularly. It's wired into our DNA. We think about what we deserve, what others deserve, what they don't deserve, what's fair, what's equitable. Some of those things, friends, when we come to the Bible and we come to think about grace and mercy, they don't, they don't hold well. Because grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. By definition, grace cannot be earned. Grace cannot be deserved. And that's true, brothers and sisters, after conversion, not just before. Righteousness, God's righteousness, demands that we be perfect. And the grace of God counts perfect righteousness to unworthy sinners through faith in Jesus. Mercy by definition, is not getting what one deserves. If you get what you deserve, that's called justice. Not getting what you deserve, in particular, not having to pay a penalty that you owe, that's mercy. Justice demands that sin be paid for. And the mercy of God in Christ brings with it absolution and forgiveness of sins. It's like we just sang, once and for all on Calvary's hill, love and justice, mercy and justice shall agree. Mercy and justice embraced one another at the cross of Christ in the most extravagant way in the history of the world. Our struggles at times to understand grace and mercy mean that we can misunderstand the kingdom of heaven and how it works. We're going to be considering today a parable of the Lord Jesus from Matthew chapter 20. It's the parable of laborers in the vineyard. And he is going to tell this parable in order to illustrate how the kingdom of heaven operates. And we pray that it will be helpful and instructive to us and that the Lord will use it not only to teach us and enlighten us, but to strengthen and confirm and encourage our faith in 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, you can open them up, or if you've got a Bible app on your phone, turn it on to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 today, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Keep in mind the context here. We, in God's providence, we looked at Matthew 19, 16 to 30 last week in the account of the rich young man. But if you remember, even in the verses prior to that account, in verses 13 to 15 of Matthew 19, Jesus was very clear in having little children brought to him that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like children, he says. In other words, the kingdom of heaven does not belong to the strong, but to the weak. It belongs not to those who can do for themselves, but to those who are helpless, who can only receive what is given to them. And then in the account of the rich young man, we learned very pointedly from Christ that we cannot keep the law for salvation. We cannot keep the law for righteousness. Salvation cannot be earned. And in fact, salvation is impossible for human beings. But that with God and only with God is salvation possible. And then Jesus at the end of that account, especially in verses 28, 29, 30, he starts to help the disciples understand how the kingdom of heaven works. And in particular, in verse 30, many who are first will be last and the last first. This does not work like you think. It's not merit, but it's grace. It's not that God saves those who deserve it or those who are elite or those who are better. He justifies the ungodly by faith. Everyone is in equal need of Christ and of grace. So with all of those things in mind, friends, let's look now to our text for today, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Listen now as I read God's word. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these work only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. 
it's important for us as we think about this parable to remember why, again, that Jesus is telling it. It's very clear that he's telling it to unpack what the kingdom of heaven is like. You can see that in chapter 20 and verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus says. And then he goes on to tell this parable. And he's going to further explain what he had said in chapter 19 and verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And you could tell that not only because chapter 20 and verse 1 follows that immediately, but also because at the end of the parable in verse 16 of chapter 20, Jesus again makes that statement. So, in summary, the last will be first and the first last. Remember the purpose of the parables of Jesus. They reflect and communicate the principles of the kingdom of God. And in so doing, they are aimed at the hearts of men and women to crush self-confidence, to crush self-righteousness and entitlement and the notion of merit. Parables are more, brothers and sisters, than Jesus' version of Aesop's fables. They are not simply tales of morality. They describe in very vivid ways what is really going on. They describe in vivid ways things as they really are. People in Jesus' audience were to see themselves in his parables. So too with us. We are meant to see ourselves in them. We are meant to come away from the parables of Christ thinking, knowing, saying, he was talking about me. They serve, the parables of Christ do, as a kind of mirror for us. They expose what's in our hearts. So let's consider this text together. Let's just walk our way through the first dozen verses. It's not a complicated parable at all. You can understand it just like I can on the face of it, what Jesus is communicating. Let's just look at it together. So he's telling, verse 1, a parable about what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This man's going to hire people to work for him for the day. So he goes and he finds workers. He agrees with them for a wage. I'm going to pay you this. I'm going to give you this in exchange for working for me in verse 2. But then he goes back out at various intervals through the day, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. The owner of the house goes out and brings more laborers into the vineyard at those respective times. And then finally, in verse 6, we see that he goes out at the 11th hour. Keep in mind that in this era of world history, a typical work day would have been roughly 12 hours from dawn to dusk. Right. So this is literally like the end of the day. That expression, the 11th hour, is used for a reason. The day is almost done. He goes and gets these final few workers who are standing idle all day. And he says, you go into the vineyard as well. And then in verse eight, evening comes. So you got some people who've been working since dawn, practically some that have been working nine hours, some six, some three, and then some who have just really gotten warmed up and are just getting going. And now the day is over. The owner of the vineyard, verse eight says to his foreman, the man who's running the crew, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So, verse 9, those hired last come to be paid. They receive a denarius, which is the wage that had been agreed upon with the workers in the morning. So, when those who were hired first came, they, they saw that those guys that just started working got paid a denarius. So, they're thinking, 
but we'll get paid more because we've worked all day. Verse 10, that's what happens. They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius, the same amount that those had received who had only worked one hour. And then on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house and they plead their case. These people have only worked one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We have worked all day. All right, let's just stop for a moment. At a human level, in every single heart and mind right now, we are thinking just like those workers are thinking. Like it's, it's rising up. It's welling up within every one of us right now. We're thinking, yeah, those workers, they're right. They've got a reason to grumble. They did. They worked all day. They bore the brunt of it. And they're receiving the same wage that the people did who just literally showed up like five minutes ago. That's precisely Jesus's point. We, like the disciples, don't understand how the kingdom of heaven works. We don't understand how salvation works. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. The master of the house is going to reply in verses 13 to 15 to the grumbling. He says in verse 13, friend, you know, term of at least cordiality, if not endearment, friend, we're not enemies here. I'm doing you no wrong. I am giving you what we agreed to. I'm not doing you an injustice. Had I agreed to give you a denarius and I gave you much less, that would be unjust of me. But I'm doing what I said I would do. Verse 14. This is important. Don't miss the language of this verse. It says, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Don't miss the language of giving. I'm giving to the last one like I'm giving to you. Don't miss what Jesus is doing. Don't, don't like nail his parables to the wall to take every particular detail and try to extrapolate it out. The point of what Christ is doing, what he's trying to illustrate is that the master of the house is giving to each of these workers. The analogy is one of grace and not merit. It's grace and gift, not merit and wage that Jesus is trying to depict. And the master says, I am giving to the last one just as I gave to you who came earlier in the day. Then in verse 15, the master of the house asks a rhetorical question. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Implied answer is, well, yes, you are. Or, he asks, do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge the fact that I am generous? Do you begrudge the fact that, at least in your, from your perspective, you see me to be more generous to those other people than I am to you? Do you begrudge my generosity? So here it is again. The language of gift and of giving and of grace and of generosity. What's being highlighted here is precisely that the generosity and the grace and the gift-giving nature of the master of the house. And then Jesus pulls it all together, as we've already considered in verse 16. So, 
as I have demonstrated, the last will be first and the first last in this way. This is how it works. So let's, let's reflect together a little bit on this parable. One thing that we can say with confidence is that salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift that's certainly in view here as Christ is talking about the kingdom of heaven and how it operates. God's economy of salvation, and we're going to think more about this, absolutely obliterates the I deserve more mentality. The way that God saves blows that up. We can't think in those terms. Because see, here's the deal. Like Our take on the parable as Jesus is telling it, like we thought about, like you're feeling and thinking as you read it, is that yes, those workers deserve more money than the people who showed up. The ones who showed up at the beginning of the day deserve more money in our brains than the ones who showed up at the end of the day. Yes. And as I said earlier, that is precisely Jesus's point, that we do not understand how the kingdom of heaven works and operates. We do not understand the economy of grace. We don't understand, as we should, how salvation is completely a gift. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. Someone else takes our punishment. That, that someone else, namely, is Christ. So if we're thinking in terms of justice and what we deserve, then we bear the penalty for breaking God's law because every one of us has broken it over and over and over again. We bear that penalty if we're talking in terms of what we deserve and if we're talking in terms of justice. The wrath of God that is the righteous and good wrath of God against evil that will be meted out, we, in a system that is only built on justice and merit, we bear that. We take that. For eternity, we do. But the kingdom of heaven is built upon the work of Christ in the place of sinners where he died the death we deserve, paid the penalty that's ours. It's as though by faith in Christ, when we are united to him, it is as though we have died under the law and the penalty is paid. It will never need to be paid again. The kingdom of heaven is built upon the work of Christ, so that someone else, namely Jesus, gives us his record of obedience, gives us his perfect record of fulfillment of the law. Righteousness and justice require perfection. So if we're talking about justice and we're talking about what we deserve, if you are not perfect, you do not deserve heaven. Period. None of us do. The kingdom of heaven is built upon this principle of Christ as the substitute for sinners, the representative of sinners, so that by faith in him, his perfect works, life, obedience, fulfillment of the law is really counted to you and me. I say this all the time because it's so shockingly good. We need to be reminded of it every single Sunday that it is as though you did all the works that Christ did. Is that not mind-blowing? It's as though you kept the law perfectly by faith in him. His record for your record. It's astonishing. So, 
The kingdom of heaven is not about what we deserve. It's about looking to another who has earned salvation for us. Salvation, it's fine to say this, salvation has been earned for you, but not by you. Salvation has been earned for you by Christ. Jesus has earned God's favor for us, and God then gives it to us by grace. Jesus has earned righteousness for us, and God gives it to us by grace. Jesus is the one who has accomplished it, and it is applied to us through the means of faith. We trust Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We rely upon Jesus. We look to Jesus and we're saved. This has all kinds of good implications for the church and for us and our lives together. When we begin to understand grace, like really understand this grace, we stop bickering about what we deserve. Jesus exposes all of our hearts in this parable. Not only are we like the workers in thinking that they themselves deserve more, we are like the workers in thinking that others deserve less than we do. We're all like that. We, from our perspective, have worked really hard and have thereby vindicated the favor that we've been shown by God. How absurd is that? Others, conversely, have not done enough and thereby are not worthy of the favor that they have received. A lot of times we sound like we think that by our working, we will go back and retroactively vindicate God saving us. Like we can just be good enough on the backside of conversion that we kind of turn ourselves into the kind of people that God would have been happy to save in the first place. Can't be done. Can't be done. Do you see the problem with that kind of thinking that Jesus is pointing out? None of us deserve God's favor. That's what makes grace, grace. When we begin to understand that kind of grace, brothers and sisters, we stop bickering about what we or others deserve. We do. We stop measuring and competing and resenting one another. To use the language of Galatians 5, we stop biting and devouring one another. We realize when we start to understand grace and the nature of the gospel and the nature of what Christ has done for us, we realize that we are all really sin-sick wretches who are debtors to grace and mercy. And as all this is happening in hearts and minds, it makes real love possible in the church. Real love for one another flows out of this understanding in the church. We concern ourselves with one another's good. So we're not, again, we're not comparing, we're not measuring, we're not resenting, we're not thinking, well, you know, they've been blessed more than me. We don't do that nonsense. We concern ourselves with one another's good. We praise God together because we know that we have been all rescued by the grace of God in Christ. 
we rejoice over God's grace to us. We rejoice as we look at God's grace in our brothers and sisters, in their lives. Praise the Lord for His grace to Ron. Praise the Lord for His grace to Janet. Whatever, right? That's what we do. And we bear one another's burdens and sorrows. It's amazing, brothers and sisters, how our hearts are knitted together when we collectively realize our need for Christ and what only He can provide. It's amazing our hearts are knitted together when we collectively realize our need for the grace of God all the time. It unites a body of Christ. It unites brothers and sisters in the faith across the world even. So in thinking about the the grace of God, the nature of grace in the kingdom of heaven and the gospel, it's good for us to realize what's really going on. If Jesus did not come For sinners, sinners, not the righteous. If Jesus did not come for the weak, if Jesus did not come for miserable wretches, then we are without hope because we are all of the above. We are sinners, we are weak, we are miserable wretches. We are desperately sick because of sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? No one. We're so fallen and so corrupted that we don't even understand our own minds and hearts. Thank God that Jesus is a friend of sinners. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. If this was not true of him, then no one would ever be saved. So friends, we have to stop thinking about what we deserve. If we were to get what we deserve, as has already been made clear, we get judgment and not salvation. Those in Christ by faith get mercy. And mercy, by the way, is better than fair. I don't know if you thought about that. Mercy is better than fair. You want fair? Go find another religion. There's plenty of them. You want better than fair, this is where you come. Only Jesus. Another thought, just I'm landing the plane. We're descending in altitude here. Everyone in Christ is equally saved. That's a fair takeaway from this parable, is it not? Everyone in Christ is equally saved. So that means from the bad sinners to the worst, because there are no other kind, right? All equally saved, equally justified, and will be equally glorified. There are not tiers of salvation. And I mean like ranking kind of tiers, not these. If we are in Christ, we are in Christ. And everything that is His is ours by faith. That's the message of the Scripture. Think about a couple of examples from from the Bible that might help us just wrap our minds around this we're all equally saved idea. So think about the thief on the cross in the Gospel of Luke. How many good works did he have? Not many. Not many. He wasn't a believer very long. Now what he had was pretty legit. He implored his fellow man to repent of sin and trust Christ. That's legit. 
So this man, not many good works at all to speak of, but at the judgment at the end of history, God himself will bear witness in this man's stead and say he was real because he trusted my son. This man is just as real, just as redeemed as any other saint in all of history. We will together with him, we with him, will forever praise the grace, love, and faithfulness of God. Another example. Think about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. They're fleeing from Pharaoh, right? We know the story. Most of us are familiar with flannel board, right? Sunday school, we're there. And we know that there's a lot of fear and trepidation. There's a lot going on, understandably. God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites go through it. Now, there are all kinds of people going through the water. We trust some would have had strong faith, relying completely upon the promises of God. He's going to do this. We know it. But then there are others, undoubtedly, who are like, yeah, I don't know about walking through this water like this. This is precarious. I'm not sure I want to do this. Some would have had good attitudes, appropriate attitudes. Others, not so much. But in that scenario, the second greatest work of deliverance and redemption in the history of the world, all of those people were equally delivered from bondage in Egypt. That's because, why is that the case? That's because it is God who saves by grace and not by merit. We have no righteousness of our own. We have nothing to present to God that would impress him to the point where he would then say, yes, you may now enter my holy heaven. God is impressed with one thing and only one thing the merit and the work of his son. He is all kind of impressed with that. And you, by faith, have been counted with that. Now, interjection. I don't want to be misunderstood. God is honored and glorified in the good works we do by faith. Amen. But here's the thing. Those good works were prepared beforehand by whom? By God for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10. He's the one who has ordained them for us. Those good works are produced by what? Your flesh? Not so much. But by God's Spirit? Okay, yes. God produces the good works that you do. By His Spirit, He does. And those good works are not for your benefit. They're for God's honor and they're for the good of your neighbor. Those good works do not earn us anything before God. They are simply the outflow of what He has done in us and for us. Let's say that again. Those good works don't earn us anything before God. They are the outflow of what He has already done in us and is doing in us and for us. How foolish then that we tend to think because of things that we're doing I deserve more than that guy. I deserve more from God than that person. Finally, I want to just say a brief word about God's instructions, his commands to us, our obedience to them, and the motivation for that obedience. Think about the instructions of God in his word. 
It is as though God says to us, his children in Christ, now that I have given you everything in my son, now that I've given you everything, go and love one another. Go and love your neighbor as yourself. Go love your brothers and sisters. Go and sin no more. Now that I've given you everything, go and sin no more. And what do we respond? How do we respond to that? Wonderful news. We say, okay, like, yes, and amen. And we say, I, I want to go do that. I'm going to go do that. And then we pray all the time, Father, help me do that. The most common prayer that any Christian ever prays is, help me. God corrects and rebukes us in his word, no doubt, because we need correction because we're prone to err. But what is it, brothers and sisters, that motivates us toward love and obedience? What is it that drives us forward? What is it that really grips our hearts and stirs us up to go love others, that grips our hearts and stirs us up to go and flee from sin? What is it? It's, it's grace. It's the gospel. It's Christ that does that. It's Christ and what he has done for us that motivates and drives and propels us. It's the grace and the love and the mercy of God that he has shown us that stirs our hearts toward love and obedience. This, brothers and sisters, is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is built by grace upon the cornerstone of Christ. As has been written of the Lord's grace, your grace that brings this sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the good news, the gospel. We thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us. We praise you as the God of the universe who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, who shows faithfulness to thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and who is also righteous and just and will by no means clear the guilty. It's who you are. We praise you for that and we thank you for your works of redemption that you have accomplished for us through your son. We pray that you would humble us all, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would continue to stir us up as we behold the Lord Jesus to love and obedience and good works. We pray for you to continue to do this work in us in Jesus' name. Amen.